Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right. Another week, another strong episode of the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. And I say that in the most humble way possible, not only because it's true, but because of the hard work being done behind the scenes, especially by the man sitting directly to my left, one Brian Thomas. I, of course, am your host, Fran Duffy, and I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 19 as the 2015 season is officially underway here in Philadelphia. First up, we've got Chalk Talk, and I talked with former NFL quarterback Boomer Esiason. Uh, We talked about a lot of different things, including you know the no-huddle offense, different passing concepts, things that uh, he remembered from his playing days and things that he sees in the NFL now. So it was a really good discussion there with Boomer. Uh, For two technique, I talked with new Eagles cornerback Byron Maxwell about defending the back shoulder fade. It was a really interesting discussion, uh, so really excited for you guys to hear that. And then we're going to wrap the show up with Saturday scouting, talking college football, and some of the top prospects with Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. So really excited for everything uh, that we've got in the show today. But before we get into that, it's time to welcome in my favorite guy in the room, one Brian Thomas. What's up, BT? How you doing, sir, sir? Doing all right, doing all right. It's uh, the start of training camp. The, the grind is here. It's that time. You know, everyone wonders uh, when when does our our days start in terms of the grind, yeah. and they started probably a couple weeks ago. But uh, it's good to kind of have football around the corner. I always say that training camp, and this is this will be my tenth year of training camp, uh, whether it's at the college level or the pro level. So uh, I always say that it was the same whether I was, a, I was a Templar here at the Eagles. But in training camp, you never know what day of the week it is. Because every day is the same. It's Groundhog's Day. Never know what day of the week it is. But you know the date because all the practice schedules and things like that, you always know the date. But then when you get into the season, you always know the day of the week because you have that. We have our set Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But we don't know if it's Halloween. We don't know if it's Thanksgiving. You know, Christmas is around the corner. We have no idea when it is. Those winter days, they all start to just melt and feel like the same day. You know, it gets dark by 5 30, 6 o'clock. You know, you leave, you come in and there's sun, you leave and there's no sun and you're. That turns into the entire season, but it's nice to kind of kind of have football. But at the same time, this next month's going to be uh, it's going to be packed for us. Yeah, exactly right. Well, we are just under two weeks away from the first preseason game for the Eagles. At least we have the Hall of Fame game coming up next weekend, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, but before we get into the rest of the show, last week, PT, you told everyone to go home. Go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, wherever you listen to the podcast. Rate the show, leave comments, leave suggestions. Uh, how did we do so far? Did you check it out? We got some responses, which is good because your feedback helps us, you know, do better, make, make a better show. But we certainly need more. Go, you know, go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, wherever you guys consume the podcast, and whatever you guys want on the show, don't want on the show, like, don't like. Um, it'll certainly help us get better. So, uh, so certainly go in there and give us your feedback, good or bad. No, no question. In fact, one of the people that commented actually left a comment and included a question for me to answer on the show, which uh, I was pretty excited about. That was actually a pretty good idea. Uh, we'll get into that question later on in the show. Before we get to that, let's kick things off like we will do each and every week. Let's talk some football. I talked about it already. Boomer Esiason, and you know him now as one of the hosts of Boomer and Carton in the morning on CBS Radio. But before that, he ran an offense in Cincinnati that is a lot of similarities to what we're seeing here in Philly. Boomer and I talk about that and a whole lot more in this week's edition of Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. I'm really excited to be joined by Boomer Esiason. And Boomer, you started your NFL career playing for the Bengals under Sam Weish, and he's maybe best known for introducing the no huddle as a standard offense. You called it the attack offense. Other teams used it in certain situations like two-minute, but you were the first to use it up and down the field week in and week out, and it was something the NFL had not seen before. Nowadays we see systems like you know the one here in Philly, uh, in places like New England and Denver, Green Bay, a lot of offense. Every offense wants to have some sort of tempo now, but right off the bat, Coming into the Bengals out, out of the University of Maryland, what were the immediate advantages you saw from running that style of offense? Well, it really took everybody off guard. And I remember the first time Sam really tried to put it in. I think I want to say it was 1985, so it was like my second year. Uh, my rookie year, I had enough trouble trying to adjust to the speed of the NFL and understanding our playbook and how they really spoke about defenses in the NFL. So I was a little bit over my head like most rookie quarterbacks are. But it was like my second and third year, we started to dabble with it. And then he saw that we were very good at it at the end of games, at the end of halves, and how we would score all these points in these situations. And I think he just thought to himself and and told his offensive staff, 
hey, we're really good at this. Our quarterback can handle it. Why don't we try to expand the entire offense and run our offense at the uh, at the line of scrimmage? As long as the quarterback can handle it and he gets the most out of it, then I think that's one of the strengths that uh, that he has. And uh, and thankfully for me, he recognized that because the one thing that I I really take away from my career in the NFL and now as a broadcaster covering the NFL was that I knew what was going on on the field. I knew how to communicate in short sound bites. I knew how to read defenses. I knew all the formations on our offense. I didn't have to wear, you know, one of those wristbands with all the plays on it. And this was back in the day where there was no coach to quarterback communication device like there is in the NFL today. This is uh, all off of, uh, you know, hand signals and all the old ways that we used to do things in order to communicate. So Sam recognized uh, that I had a gift in that regard. He played to that gift, and I think it was one of the reasons why not only were we successful, but for me personally, uh, it was one of the reasons why I think I was so successful there for about six or seven years in Cincinnati. I always think it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people bring it up, but the fact that when you can play no huddle, it allows you to be uh, very simplistic almost in your offensive attack. You know, you look here in Philadelphia, there's only you know a handful of running plays that the, the Eagles run under Chip Kelly. You look in Green Bay, uh, a lot of the pass concepts you see from the Packers and Aaron Rodgers are very simple uh, you know, football one-on-one type of, of concepts. And just because you run at that pace, it allows you to kind of be simple because you're keeping the defense guessing. Well, that's what they do today. And that's really what Jim Kelly did with the Kagan uh, offense when they took our principles and our ideas and then kind of put them to their spread open, one, you know, three wide receiver, one running back, one tight end kind of offense, which is what we see now in the NFL. However, our offense was much more detailed than that. We could We could – uh, substitute on the fly like hockey teams do, believe it or not. As soon as the play was over, I knew the personnel group that Sam wanted to run a particular play from, and I would know that simply because of where we were on the field and the tendencies of the defenses that we were playing against. So we were able to do our entire playbook, and I don't care if it was a run that took two backs in the backfield or one back in a different formation with the back, uh, you know, maybe started out as a wide receiver or a slot guy and then came in motion. It could have actually been on the goal line. We ran no huddle on the goal line, believe it or not. An interesting thing about that is that, as most NFL fans will know, sometimes, you know, you have a backup tackle playing tight end, so he has to report as an ineligible receiver. So when he's reporting as an eligible receiver, he's doing it as I'm calling the plays at the line of scrimmage on the one-yard line. So we basically had our entire playbook uh, at, the, at our fingertips, and, and whatever Sam wanted to do, I was able to pull it off communication-wise, and we were pretty very, well, I'm not pretty good at it, we were very good at it, and one of the reasons why we had one of the top offenses in football for about five or six years. That's, that's actually, that's really interesting. I never thought about it that way, that you guys were able to be, uh, you know, so uh, really anti-simplistic of uh, what you see nowadays. But uh, I took the Liberty Boomer of paging through one of your old playbooks. I was able to find one online. Uh, it was actually your 1990 playbook under Sam Weish. Uh, knowing how good of a play-action passer you were, I took, I took a look at some of those plays and came across uh, a play called Pepper 36 Counter X Cross. It was a post-cross concept off of counter-run action. Um, and this play is prevalent across football nowadays. You see it all over the league. Uh, you know, with a, it's one of the bigger vertical shot plays around the NFL. Uh, so many teams run it. Can you just talk about uh, maybe some of the different progressions, anything you may remember from, the, from that kind of play concept? Well, what I remember from that play, uh, when I went back to Cincinnati my final year and 14th year in the NFL, my offensive coordinator under Sam Weish was Bruce Coslett, who then became the head coach for the Jets and traded for me in 1993. And then he got hired by the Bengals uh, right around 96 as their head coach. So my last year in the NFL was 1997, and Bruce Coslett was my coach, and we were running the same offense under Bruce that we ran under Sam. And I did that as the Jet quarterback under Bruce and also under the Bengal quarterback when I went back into Cincinnati. And my last touchdown pass was a 77-yard touchdown pass in the last game of the 1997 season against the Baltimore Ravens. And it ultimately won the game against the Ravens. And it was the aforementioned play that you just described. It was uh, Pepper 36 counter, roll left, X shell across, Z post, and I think I, yeah, I can't remember the receiver I hit. I think it was Darnay Scott for a touchdown pass uh, to beat the Ravens. So, you know, that play was a combination of a very a successful run play that we had. It was a counter play where the, where the back would step one way to the left, and then he would come back, and you'd have pulling guards and maybe a backside tackle pulling. And because we were so good at running the football, 
they decided in their minds, the coaches I'm talking about, to create what they called a run-action pass. And there's a difference between a play-action pass and a run-action pass. So when I said the word pepper in the huddle, that immediately told everybody we were doing a run-action pass. All right, so what is a run-action pass? Well, a run-action pass had to sound like a run at the line of scrimmage. And why would we want to make something sound like a run? Because defensive players are instinctive and they react to sound. Sometimes they, they lose sight of the football. But if they hear a play that sounds like a running play where the offensive linemen are firing off the ball and they are engaging with the defense and they are creating a sound that sounds like a run, they're more apt to get out of position. So if you call a run-action pass and it's a heavy run fake, the running back's got to go in there full speed like he's got the ball. i got to make like I handed the ball off. And then the linemen have to grunt and groan and, and dive at the defensive uh, linemen's and, and the linebackers' legs. Now all of a sudden the safety behind that could be responding and could be out of position all for about maybe a tenth or, a, or, or two-tenths of a second. And that's all I need in order to get a speeding wide receiver past him. And that works so many times for us, whether it be off of the counter, whether it be off the basic uh, downhill tackle play, whether it be off of a fake sweep pitch, or whether it be down on the goal line where you would go off tackle and you'd go heavy run and you just pull it out of the, uh, the belly of the running back and just drop it off to a tight end or a backside tackle that might be lined up as a tight end. So there were so many aspects to our run-action pass plays that we were able to really kind of fool the defense because not only of what I was doing and what the running back was doing, but the sound that was being made at the line of scrimmage by the offensive line. And you know what? One of the things I love about that concept too. You talked about obviously in in that particular play, all the run action from the you know from all uh, eleven guys across the front of selling the run. But then also uh, the idea that you guys were such a good running team over the long haul, you almost forced teams to play single high and not have a second safety high. So you forced that extra man into the box, and now you're putting that post safety in a bind with those two routes across the middle of the field. It it, it makes it so it's really really hard to stop. There's no question about that. The other thing that I do see in Philadelphia uh, now as they're running uh, you know, their plays, uh, I see a lot of what we did in 1997 uh, as I was the Cincinnati Bengal quarterback. And what we would do, I was actually trying to run plays every 15 seconds. And I remember doing this in practice in the summer. And the reason I did it, I was the backup quarterback behind Jeff Blake as that season started. And, you know, I was telling all the young guys, look, I want to get through these uh, these uh, the show um, uh, parts, segments of the of the practice where we would show the other team's offense quickly, and I want to do it quickly, I want to do it efficiently, and I want to get up and I want to snap the ball. And I used to go on first sound all the time in practice. And I remember Dick LeBeau, our defense coordinator back then, who uh, had been a longtime defense coordinator in Cincinnati, then went to Pittsburgh, and now is obviously down in Tennessee, you know, arguing with me as the backup quarterback running the scout team that I was going too fast and his defense didn't have a chance to really align properly and they weren't really getting a lot out of practice. And I used to argue with Dick saying, if they can't figure it out in practice, then they're not going to figure it out in the game. And that's where we're going to have a problem. So that was always my argument, and that's how I would practice. And then really as the season started, I would do the same thing. And then once I finally got on the field as the starting quarterback of the Bengals, not only was I not not only was I running the no huddle offense, I was also running it as quickly as I possibly could, trying to get the ball snapped every 15 to 20 seconds. So, what I see in Philadelphia with Chip Kelly these days, I absolutely love it. I was a part of it back in 1997, and certainly as a part of the no huddle offense uh, in the early 80s, uh, and then growing it to where it was uh, in 1997 was really something special to be a part of. Well, obviously we talk about the post-cross boomer, and one of the, that's one of the more popular high-low concepts used around the league. And again, where you're trying to put that defender in a bind, uh, you know, with a high route over top of him, and then a, a shallow route underneath him, trying to put him in a bind to guess which way, uh, you know, you're going to go with the ball. Um, were there any other high-low concepts from your playing days that you felt very comfortable with when they were called in the huddle? You know, it was kind of interesting. When I first started in the NFL, when you got into the red zone, you saw a lot of blitz coverage, a lot of band coverage, and, you know, really it was one-on-one stuff on the outside. And then as the NFL started to change and defenses started to change their tactics, they would play what they call today uh, quarter, quarter, half, or they would play quarter, 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 quarter. 
And what I'm talking about is the secondary and their alignments. And a quarter-quarter-half scenario on one side of the field, they're playing with a high safety and a low defensive back, mainly a cover-two look, so all your hardcore football fans know what I'm talking about. And then on the other side, they're playing quarter-quarter, meaning that the outside uh, defensive back has got outside leverage and he's lined up on the wide receiver, and then the inside defensive back or the safety basically has to uh, take the first receiver inside, and if he goes up into his cylinder, he jumps on him, which puts a lot of pressure on that outside defensive back, and that really seems to be a, a coverage that teams that have a guy like Darrell Rivas really love because that's where that guy sits out there, and they're daring you to go after him and make plays. So late in my career, the, the concept where you would throw – uh, an inside receiver up into that cylinder to get the uh, attention of the safety and then try to run a double move on the outside uh, uh, defensive back down the middle really is a concept that now has borne itself out significantly every game in the NFL. And I see those plays being called constantly in, in NFL games. And the quarterbacks that have the arm strength, the, the Aaron Rodgers and the Ben Roethlisberger's of the world are certainly the ones that have the most success doing it because it takes a little extra time and it takes a guy that can really gun it out there. Were there things that, you know, right before the snap that would help you kind of tip you off as to, oh, you know what, this, this looks like it might be quarter, quarter, half. It looks like they might be going straight quarters or uh, a cover two. Anything before the snap that would help you tip you off as a quarterback? Absolutely. You know, fronts, uh, defensive fronts tie into uh, secondary coverages. And, you know, interestingly enough, in Cincinnati as a quarterback, I was not only required to read uh, the defensive backfield and what coverages they were presenting me, but I was also uh, told that I had to call the defensive front, and we would number all the different fronts. And then as a quarterback, I would end up having to learn the corresponding uh, coverages that would go along with those fronts. So if we were playing a 34 team and they lined up in a 34 defense straight up where there was a nose tackle and both uh, guards were uncovered, you know, I would have to yell 34 at the line. If one of uh, uh, the uh, defensive uh, ends were down on one of our guards, depending on whether it was a strong side or a weak side, on the strong side it's known as over. On the weak side it's known as under. But the way we would call it would be by numbers. So if it was a weak under, I would say 35. If it was a week over, I would say I would say 37. If both guards were covered with the nose tackle, then I would say 39. So, as a quarterback, I was asked to know all the fronts and then the corresponding coverages that would go along with it. And the beauty of the uh, the no huddle offense is that we kept defenses from stemming or moving prior to the snap of the ball into a different front. In other words, we try to lock in the defense, so therefore I would have a pre-snap read as to what the coverage was. Now, sometimes, you know, you think you knew the coverage. They disguised it really well. Usually the safety would tell you whether it be man or three deep, depending on where he would go. If you were 15 yards from the line of scrimmage, then you, you thought maybe he would try to get back into cover two coverage. If you were 17 yards from the line of scrimmage, you'd know that he's going to go to the middle. It could be cover three. It could be cover man. And then there are these teams that are actually very good at uh, disguising things where they run guys out underneath wide receivers. So there's a lot of things that going that go into really playing the, the, the position of quarterback. And the great thing for me is that I played with a guy who gave me a Ph.D. in playing quarterback, and that's not only Sam Weish, but it was also Bruce Coslett. And then ultimately later in my career, uh, the quarterback that was before me in Cincinnati, Kenny Anderson, became my offensive coordinator in Cincinnati in 97. All right, so we've talked about the high-low reads and those vertical stretch type of plays. How about the, the horizontal stretches, you know, things like curl flat and slant flat, double slant. Are there any others of those concepts that, uh, that you guys employed in Cincinnati that uh, really stuck with you and were ones that you felt most comfortable with? Well, there was a lot of smash routes, and smash routes are usually routes that you have a corner going over the top, like a, you know, an inside receiver running a corner route to the side. The outside receiver will read the underneath coverage. If it's a man coverage, he might spin out of it and go back to the sideline. If it's a zone coverage, he might come in and sit down in the hole, and there would be a back going out of the backfield running a wide route. Uh, could be a back out of the backfield running a flat route. Could also be, uh, you know, another uh, wide receiver coming across and finding the other voids in the zone. And a lot of it was all tailored uh, towards whoever we were playing against. You know, it, it depends. Like if you were playing the Steelers, and it was a 34 defense. Uh, and that defense had great outside linebackers, and they're always trying to screw with you which linebacker was in the pass rush, you'd have to go to your different pass protections to make sure you're protected first, and then you could throw the ball down the field. If you played against the Houston Oilers team with Jerry Glanville as a coach, you knew they were always blitzing. 
if you were going to take a shot down the field and you were going to take a chance and get five guys out into the route, you knew as a quarterback that it was going to be a physical game for you. You were going to get hit. But if you could just withstand the initial pressure, you could guide, you could find guys wide open. And, you know, these were all the different tendencies that, you know, of the teams that you would play against. Some teams loved to play cover three. Other teams felt like man coverage was best. So it all depended on who you were playing, uh, the conditions you were playing in, and who the players were playing with you. Because if you had injuries, uh, that would significantly deplete your offensive game plan as well. So uh, that's why the NFL and football in general is such a great game, because every game uh, is, is uh, you know, a symphony all into its own. And, you know, you have to write the game plan down, and then you have to adjust as to what the other team may be doing to you or how they're reacting to what you're trying to do to them. And that's one of the reasons I think we, as fans and ex-players and people who cover the league now, just have so much fun in dealing with all the little tendencies and all the little tweaks uh, that go on from week to week. All right, so getting back to the defensive side of the ball, uh, you know, in a situation in a game where you're coming to the line and you, and you read, you think you're getting ready to get uh, straight up man, you know, cover zero, blitz coverage across the board, no safety help at all. What are, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind as a quarterback? You want audible. You want audible to that play that, number one, is going to basically uh, protect you first and foremost. Pass protection is the key. Uh, and then a lot of times uh, you may audible and they may jump out of whatever they're showing you to try to get you to audible thinking that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're messing around with them, so they're going to mess around back with you. And I, I remember a particular play against the Dallas Cowboys. They used to love to run a double-barrel blitz where they would bring both safeties right through the A-gaps of each side of the center, and they'd widen their defensive tackles. And we had a, we had a play that we called 93-fly. And when you say 93-fly at the, at the line of scrimmage, it sounds like it's going to be a pass play. So when I audible to 93-fly, my halfback would move up into the formation and stand right next to me as I'm still under the center, and he would point to the safety that is coming through his A-gap as he was going to block him. And what we would do is we would snap the ball, the center would step to his right, take that safety that looked like that back was going to block, and annihilate him and push him all the way down the line, I would then take the ball quickly, hand it off, and then the back would run right up the middle of the field away from the other safety who was blitzing because he had no idea that I was going to hand the ball off. And we ran that probably eight or nine times in my career, all for touchdowns, all for 35 yards or longer. So, you know, it's a game of cat and mouse at the line of scrimmage. The quarterback who is the, the, the most knowledgeable, the quarterback that has the most poise, is the quarterback that will have the most success. That's great stuff. And just looking at different coverages, when you when you saw that you were going to get cover three, were there any route concepts that you felt uh, most comfortable with in attacking that kind of a coverage? Yeah, you'd like to you'd like to either run like a you know a hook flat combination uh, where your tight end would go over the over the ball for about ten yards, your wide receiver would be do a twelve or fourteen yard stop, and then your wide your back out of the backfield will either run a flat or a wide. So it's like a triangle kind of deal, and you're trying to influence the linebackers or the safeties. And the way you do that as a quarterback is by not staring down your wide receiver. You've got to kind of play games with your eyes. You've got to kind of manipulate the defense to move ever so slightly. All I need is an extra inch or two, and I can get a ball into a space, especially when my uh, wide receivers were very uh, uh, structured in their routes, very consistent in their routes. You know, when you play with guys who are a little bit loose and, and don't take their job as seriously, you end up having tip balls or interceptions or incompletions when you're on the same page uh, with your wide receivers, mainly most of my career I was that way with those guys because I would spend the extra time after practice doing it, uh, you then can really focus in and you really can get into a groove. And I think that's one of the things that you're able to do once you recognize you know, what the defense is, the players that you're playing with, and the, and the plays you're most comfortable running against those particular defenses. And how about in cover two when you you know go up against those Pittsburgh Steelers teams? Was there anything going up against cover two route concepts that you felt worked best? Yeah, that was Rodney Holman up the middle from the tight end position, and my wide receivers Eddie Brown and Tim McGee or or, or uh, Chris Collinsworth running their go routes down the down the sideline. They were so good at getting off uh, the press coverage that those safeties would have to split. And you know, I always would try to have Rodney. 
uh, lined up to the wider side of the field if we were on a hash mark or not because it really gave us that much more room to get the ball in over the, the linebacker's head. But normally it would come with a play action because you want to get that middle linebacker to step up and just give me a, a, like a tenth of a, or two-tenths two of a second to get my uh, tight end behind him in behind uh, cover two. So the other thing that always works against cover two, remember who covers the middle? It's the middle linebacker. So he has to avoid a particular area. So if that middle linebacker, like a Hardy Nickerson back in the day, would turn his back and run, and he was fast enough to stay with our tight ends, I knew that my back would just go right where he replaced him, uh, where he left from, and would replace him. I'd look downfield, look downfield, give everybody a chance to get downfield, run out of their positions, drop it off to the back, and let the back take it for 15 to 20 yards. So it's it's back and forth you go, but the 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 pressure of it all from a quarterback's perspective is having the poise to be able to sit in there knowing what you're trying to accomplish and banking that your offensive line and everybody else that's responsible for pass protection, whether it be a running back or, or a backup tight end, are going to do their jobs and take good care of you. All right, Boomer, last question. As a former quarterback, are there, any, are there different teams or coaches that you watch tape? You know, when you're watching tape of NFL teams during the season, you feel do a great job of putting their quarterback in the right position to make plays. And obviously, look, all, all, every coach, that's why they're there, is that you know, they're great at what they do. But are there any that may stand out to a point where maybe you think, man, I could have done wonders playing for a coach like that? Well, certainly, you know, Josh McDaniels in New England is one that comes to mind. Uh, my former roommate, Frank Reich, who's the offense coordinator for Philip Rivers and the San Diego Chargers, they obviously stand out, especially with what Philip has done the last couple of years. And Frank, being a former quarterback himself, knows exactly what a quarterback wants and how a quarterback wants to get himself into a game. What Chip is doing in Philadelphia is fantastic. It's wide open. Uh, you know, people, you know, this is the interesting thing about what's going on in Philadelphia now is if, if in fact, Sam Bradford will be the starting quarterback there, uh, watching how Sam takes to this offense and see if he can revive his career uh, with the players that Chip's building there and, and putting around him, especially with DeMarco Murray in the backfield. That is going to be one of the real storylines here in the NFL. I think it's a great offense. I think Mark Sanchez has proven uh, that with the right offense and the right players around you and a mindset that you are a aggressive offense, that a quarterback like Mark can actually have a lot of confidence and, and feel good about what he's doing. I also love what they're doing in uh, Arizona with Bruce Arians. He was great with Ben Roethlisberger. Todd Haley and Ben Roethlisberger uh, uh, obviously, you know, uh, turning it around with his 4,000-yard uh, season, 35 touchdowns. I mean, he had a great year this year. So there are a lot of good offenses out there where, where quarterbacks are really flourishing. The problem is they're just a dearth of quality starting quarterbacks, and it's unfortunate. I think a lot of that has to do with the college game nowadays as opposed to the college game that I used to play in. BT, that was really great stuff from Boomer. Really enjoyed that whole conversation. I was actually really surprised that he remembered specific play calls. I, I didn't alert that to him. You know, like I didn't let him know that we were going to do that in the pre-interview. Uh, I just kind of sprung that on him. But uh, he remembered specific play calls and what went into those plays. So speaking of you know him bringing up the post-cross, uh, for Madden, folks like myself and you and guys that really get into the film and kind of know the routes and, and stuff of receivers, break it down for someone that maybe doesn't know the, the, the schematics of a wide receiver post-cross. What's going on there? So really what that concept is, is it's a two-man route concept. It's a, it's a vertical shot play. It's one of the big short vertical shot plays in the NFL right now. Uh, you know, the, the team that, it, you know, when I first got to the Eagles and it was RG3 and, uh, you know, his rookie year and all that success that they had, they loved running that post-cross pattern. Uh, and what you'll see is, especially from big running teams, you're going to bring that extra safety up in the box. You have to play single high, okay? So they had Alfred Morris, and they were running the ball up and down the field, and that's an outside zone scheme. So they're, they're banking on you playing single high safety, and that post-cross concept is going to put that single high safety in a bind because you have that po deep post trying to go over the top, but then you have that crossing route over the middle. So if that safety jumps up for that cross even a little bit, you're going to hit the, the post over the top, and if he's sitting back against that post, which you know, you're hoping as a coach he's going to do, you're still going to have that underneath cross uh, you know, coming across the field 18, 20 yards. So uh, it's really a deadly combination. Again, you see it. It's a big play-action concept, so you know, with run action and, and quarterback boots out, and he's going to have a quick high-low read. He's reading that safety, and he's getting rid of the ball. So is that the play that Jordan Matthews pretty much hit a lot of, you know, towards the second half of the season, just that crossing route right across the middle? That's something like it. We, the, the Eagles run uh, a flood concept where it's same basic same idea where you're going to have a streak, uh, a go route that could convert into a deep post on the outside. 
Then you've got the deep cross coming across from the other side of the field. That was typically Matthews. And then you have some kind of flat route uh, underneath. So it's really you, got, you have a threat at all three levels of the field. And you're trying to flood. They call it flood because you're flooding one side of the zone. So uh, you're trying to make it so that that flat defender or that curl defender, he can't defend two routes at the same time, so you're trying to put those guys in a box. I was going to say that post-cross really sounds like a win-win for the offense because either way they're kind of stealing something, whether it's you know, 15, 20 yards or really going for the home run down the field. Exactly, and if you've got great run action to go with it, uh, it re- works really, really well. So uh, just talking about a win-win for the offense, one of the, the big, uh, I would say one of the most dangerous routes really that's come through in the NFL over the last few years, and obviously it's been around for a long time, but the back shoulder fade, I remember talking with Mike Mayock for, that, uh, for our Scouts Notebook piece a couple years ago when we talked to him down in St. Petersburg uh, after the Shrine game, and he said the back shoulder throw has changed football, and, you know, and that, that kind of stuck with me, and obviously you, know, you have guys like Jimmy Graham, guys like Rob Gronkowski, they flex those big tight ends out, or it could be Marcus Colston when he was, uh, you know, when he was coming up, Calvin Johnson, now A.J. Green. You're going to f- put that guy out on the boundary all alone on an island, and you're going to leave one corner on him, and you're going to throw a back shoulder fade, and you're going to try and make that, de- that corner defend that route. So I really wanted to talk with Byron Maxwell, uh, Eagles cornerback, and just talk about what goes into defending the back, back shoulder fade. Let's get into that with two technique. Time to get inside the mind of a player. It's time for two technique. All right, here now with Byron Maxwell, Eagles cornerback. And, Byron, we're going to talk about the back shoulder fade and just why it's one of the most difficult routes to defend in the NFL and really why it's kind of taking the NFL by storm. You see it all over the league, whether it's tight ends, big receivers. Let's just talk situationally. What kind of situations do you typically see uh, that back shoulder throw? Um, you typically see back shoulders first and ten. Um, red zone, that, that, that type of area. So, I mean, um, those type of situations you really see it. So like, let's say it's a, it's a three-by-one set, and you're defending the X receiver all the way on the, on, to the boundary, right? You've got that, that solo receiver out there. What is, I think one of the things that fans don't realize, it's, it's not just the fade you're worrying about. You're out there on an island. You've got to defend against those in-breaking routes, too. Can you just talk about that and the difficulty there? I mean, you know, he's outside releasing, and, you know, obviously you think of fade ball. Um, you think of comeback, maybe, but um, you think of fade ball, so you've got to protect yourself on that. That's what makes the back, back shoulder so hard. And if the receiver sells it, and if you think he's running that fade, he's, the chances are they, they're going to be able to complete the back shoulder. Is there something pre-snap when you're lining up that you can kind of clue as to whether or not he's going to run back shoulder or he's going to come inside? Um, I mean, with the bigger guys, you, you, can, you, can, you can feel them more. You can get into their body. I, I, I was always taught to play hands. So when you see them turning around, that's when you turn around. You play their hands. Um, and, and you got to be – usually most guys, they, do, they got a subtle way of pushing off. They use the elbow, and um, you just gotta you gotta feel it. It's something you gotta drill, really, to be honest with you. So, are you trying to stay shoulder? You're trying to stay on his hip, or are you just really just trying to you focus? When you see that it's gonna be back shoulder, you're looking at his hands, waiting for them to pop up, and then you're gonna shoot your hand through. All right. So, like when you play in the back shoulder, when you, when he's running, you you really want your hip to be on top of his hip. So that's the way you you can control him. You can wall him off, and you can use your your position to replace his or knock the ball down. So. That's basically what it is. When you feel them turning around, and you can see it in the eyes and their body language and everything. So it's just one of those things. Like when you feel them, you try to get where he's at. You got you to gotta already anticipate that he's going to try to push you off. So you got to stiffen your body up a little bit and just and kind of roll into it. Give with it and roll, it, and roll into it. His, his, when his push off, you got to roll into it and just, and just kind of give me that. I got, all right, all right. So let me ask you that last question. Obviously, you're a bigger corner. Uh, and you see these these kinds of routes, not just from bigger receivers, but Peyton Manning and Wes Welker do a lot in Denver. You see it from these smaller guys. You being the size you are, would you rather it be a, a bigger tight end, a bigger receiver, or uh, do the smaller guys give a little bit more issues with that kind of route just because they're a little bit quicker? No, it's actually bigger guys. They, they, they're harder because, I mean, they get the ball. Like, they, they already got the – it's like basketball, basically, at that point when the ball's in the air. It's like rebounding. So you got a smaller guy. You're working a low post. Yeah, you're working low post. I'm going to be able to get him out of the way, and I'm, I'm going to get the ball. Um, so, uh, the bigger guys, you're not gonna, it's going to be hard. Unless you got a great position, you're already turned around, like you know it's coming, you better get a pick, but usually it's just a pass breaker. But with smaller guys, I'm able to wall them off and get the pick. Really great stuff from Byron. Uh, you know, it was a really interesting conversation. Obviously, those those segments are going to be a little bit shorter than some of the other uh, interviews we do here on the podcast, but uh, really great stuff from him. And Byron, I know – 
BT, you got to go down to one of his events down in Charleston. Yeah, he uh, held held an event for his Maxwell's Way uh, bowling event down there in Char- North Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, but spent some time with him. Got to meet his family, his mom, his dad. Um, really humble guy. Did not know this, but uh, some of the guys from his town: Robert Quinn, AJ Green, Wow, Roddy White. You know, I mean, so it, it's it's not exactly you know something in the water down there. Yeah, that's that's what that's what. Uh, that's what me and the other producer were down there were like, man, uh, what's it take to get a guy to come out of here? So uh, it, it was neat being down there and really getting to know him. And he's really actually a, a very laid back, uh, uh, behind the scenes kind of guy. Doesn't really like to be in the front line of things. But it was nice to see him kind of do something for the community. Really, he wants to impact kids. Doesn't make a difference whether football fans, not football fans. He just really wants to be guys out there in the community. It was nice seeing him down there. And that'll be a segment that'll air on Inside the Eagles. It will. It will during the season, but it'll also probably be up on the web. Uh, Check it out. It'll probably be up in the next month. Awesome. All right. So uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. Before we wrap the show up, let's dive into the world of college football. Let's get to Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. If you're an avid football fan, then you're probably aware of Pro Football Focus and the great work that they do. But if you weren't paying attention this past offseason, you might have missed the debut of the College Football Focus and the content that they were able to provide to the public and have continued to publish over the last few months. Uh, There's some really, really useful info out there, especially about prospects and, most importantly, how teams use them in college, uh, which really can help you paint a picture in your evaluation of a player transitioning to the NFL. At the forefront of a lot of what is going on over there is Steve Palazzolo. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Steve. He's joining us now to talk about college football and some of the top prospects from coast to coast. Steve, what's going on, buddy? Hey, man. Doing well and uh, just getting ready to start another football season. Can't believe we're starting to. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, I think college teams are starting to report here in the next few days. Uh, one of the teams that will be reporting early is Penn State, who is quarterbacked here by Christian Hackenberg. Uh, I would say probably one of the most divisive prospects early on here in the draft process, the junior from Penn State. Uh, just your right off the cuff, I think, is the the big question here. Is he a top five pick or is he a day three pick? Because that seems to be the uh, the separation here in terms of draft Twitter. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely in the day three camp. I mean, I think all of the hype uh, behind Hackenberg right now is purely based off of height, arm strength, look, and all a lot of non-football things, in my opinion. He just um, – I know he had a pretty good freshman season, but I, he just did not play well enough last season, in my opinion, to warrant a top-five pick, a first-round pick, or even an early-round pick. It's going to be just really interesting to see how he develops this fall because last year, mechanically, you know, and you could talk about the personnel around him. Obviously, the, the offensive line wasn't great. They're really feeling the impact of those sanctions from a few years back. Uh, there's, they don't have great depth anywhere on the offensive side of the football. But you could talk about the, the, the scheme as well because uh, with James Franklin and the new coaching staff coming in, all that aside, you take the scheme, you take the personnel, his mechanics were just a mess last year. You talk about uh, his throwing platform and his stance arrow and, and how much that affected his accuracy. And I know you and I have actually had this debate in the past. Can that be fixed? I, I think it's a challenge, but yeah, it's, it's certainly something that's fixable. And look, I think when you when you look at a guy like Hackenberg and, and you take into account everything that you said, let's let's say the scheme's working against him, let's say the personnel's working against him. We know he didn't have a great offensive line. The the thing in my mind was just how bad it all added up to be. And if you're familiar with the PFF system, we're in a plus minus scale, zero being average. Hackenberg in our system graded at minus 58.2, which is lower than any NFL quarterback has ever graded in our system since 2007. So even if you give him the benefit of the doubt in scheme and personnel around him and, and everything's working against him, I think we're not talking about a guy who was just who just had a down year. It was pretty much historically bad uh, from a passing standpoint, from a decision-making standpoint. Uh, from a fumble standpoint, all this stuff rolled into there. Um, we even attributed eight sacks to him holding the ball too long. So uh, as, as bad as the offensive line was, I think he deserves um, a lot of the blame in that regard too. And that's where I struggle with putting uh, you know, top-notch prospect status on him. Now, as far as the footwork, um, again, I think the debate you and I had was if, we, if you can fix it, yeah, there's upside there, sure, but – 
you know, do, do you have the time to fix it? Uh, you know, is it that easy to fix footwork, mechanics, that type of stuff? We've been hearing about Tim Tebow changing his mechanics since his sophomore year of college. And uh, here we are entering another season where Tebow's revamped his mechanics and is going to change things. It's a difficult thing to do. And I don't know that that's necessarily worth a first round pick. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, again, it'll be a very interesting thing. I think coming into the, uh, the college football season, probably one of the top two or three storylines, at least in terms of the NFL draft uh, and what we're looking forward to for 2016. Let's move on here. I know you're a Florida guy, so I wanted to ask you about a couple Gators. One guy who I was incredibly impressed with, uh, the wide receiver Demarcus Robinson, 6'2", 201 pounds. Uh, you may remember his uncle, Marcus Robinson, was an NFL receiver for the Bears and the, uh, the Vikings, and I believe the Ravens was his third team. Uh, really athletic, explosive kid. What have you seen from Demarcus Robinson? Yeah, I've been impressed as well. I mean, he, he, he definitely gets hurt or got hurt by some very poor uh, quarterback play. He had Jeff Driscoll throwing him the ball for the first half of the season or much of the season. Uh, true freshman Treon Harris throwing him the ball for the other half of the season, essentially. Uh, you know, there were plenty of times on tape where you'd see him defeat the press and just run away from cornerbacks, have a step deep and either get overthrown or just, or just not seen in general. So, I think Robinson, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned his side, and he's got that long strider type of uh, you know, explosive ability where he just gets on corners quickly. He has the ability to run away from guys um, in the secondary. You know, he doesn't always have the greatest ball skills as far as tracking the deep ball, but he, he made a few nice catches. And like I said, there was a lot of times when, when he was open and just did not have a quarterback get the ball to him. But he was clearly the best receiver on Florida. Uh, the one guy that could that could kind of do it all for them, take a short pass and create yards after the catch, get open deep, um, and he might be the, in, in the same boat again this year as, as the go-to guy and, and one of their only threats. I couldn't help it. It's ironic because I actually watched these two guys back-to-back. Uh, I watched Rashard Higgins from Colorado State, who obviously was a first-team All-American last year under Jim McElwain, yep. who is now the head coach at Florida. And then a couple players later, I watched Robinson. Robinson's a bit bigger than Higgins, but I can almost just envision him taking, uh, you know, taking that role as the go-to guy and really putting up big numbers as long as they get that good quarterback play. Yeah, I could see it. I mean, Higgins looked like he was playing at a completely different speed uh, against the Mountain West competition. I mean, he was – he just ran away from everybody. He made big-time plays on screens. He actually had close to 1,000 yards after the catch last season. That's how, wow. uh, that's how good he was. And a lot of that came on you know, quick screens, and he was a screen and a deep guy. And I think that fits Robinson's skill set. He's not really a, a shifty guy, but when he, gets, you know, when he gets those legs moving, he can create some speed. So I think if they, if they do put him in space in the screen game and, and let him attack the deep parts of the field, I, I could see something like that. All right, so let's let's shift to the backfield now. Kelvin Taylor, another uh, former, I should say, another a son of another former NFL player, uh, Fred Taylor's son, Kelvin, 5'11", 215 pounds, uh, kind of shared the load a bit, obviously, last year with, uh, with Matt Jones, who was a third-round pick of the Washington Redskins. But Taylor's got an, an impressive skill set as well. What have you seen from him so far in his career? I think it's inevitable that you're going to get those comparisons between Kelvin and Fred. It's really not fair because Fred – it's too bad he got hurt so often because he just had that total package, the breakaway speed, the power. He could do it all, you know, niftiness, you know, nimbleness in the, in, the, in the hole. And it's funny, when you look at Kelvin, I don't think he has one great attribute where Fred maybe had a lot of great attributes. Kelvin's more of a uh, take what he gets. He doesn't really make a lot of guys miss. Um, doesn't do it. He's, he's not the shiftiest guy. He definitely doesn't have the breakaway speed that is, that his father had at this point, it looks like he's more of just a, uh, you know, take what's blocked type of type of running back. And we'll see if he can progress here um, as, he, as he takes on more of the workload with Matt Jones moving on. But um, I don't think there's anything in, in Kelvin's game that really stands out. He's just a, a pretty solid college running back at this point, in my opinion. All right. Well, staying in the sec here, you got Arkansas who probably has the best duo of running backs heading into the league, at least at this point, uh, in the process, you've got Jonathan Williams, the senior, Alex Collins, the junior, uh, and both guys have very distinct skill sets. But Williams, watching him, I was very, very impressed. Just uh, athletically, it's not there. He's not the most explosive guy, but a really natural runner, very decisive inside. Uh, I think he's got the ability to play in a gap scheme or a zone scheme. What have you seen from Williams? What have you seen from Collins? And how have those two guys impressed you so far? I think you described Williams right on. I mean, he's a he's a straight line type of guy, and 
the thing that the thing that stood out to me was uh, the fact that guys just bounced off of him. He's he's a little bit higher cut than Collins, and uh, but just he's just strong. And he he actually he broke 65 tackles last year. That actually uh, led the SEC. We're talking about guys like Nick Chubb and Cameron Artis Payne, who were right up there with him. But he led with 65 force missed tackles. And uh, you know the Arkansas running game is really fun to watch because it's as quote unquote pro style as it gets. It's it's power. It's trap. They're probably the best trap team. Um, in the nation, so they actually, you know, they they will put running backs in in uh, in position to succeed. But Williams, the thing that stood out was uh, difficult to tackle in the hole, and like you said, not a great athlete. He's not necessarily gonna, uh, you know, be a, a sharp cut, make a guy miss type of guy, but just very difficult to tackle. Whereas Collins is, is definitely a lot shiftier, and um, I'd actually like to see Collins in more of a zone scheme, just with his cutting ability. He's just very sharp and quick to the hole, quick through the hole. He's um, different style, and again, both successful, both thousand-yard type running backs behind this massive offensive line. Fun guys to watch, but very distinct skill sets, as you mentioned. Yeah, and I think Collins is very impressive. You mentioned the burst. I mean, he's got that ability. It's not Melvin Gordon-esque, but just the, his ability to stick his foot in the ground and go. Uh, I think yep. will make him a really good fit in a scheme like that. Uh, kind of, you know, who you're kind of reminding me of just in his running style was Chris Ivory. Uh, who obviously started with the New Orleans Saints, now he's up with the Jets. Just in terms of his running style and, and the, the guy, a guy that's that big moving that quickly in such a short area, uh, Collins will be an interesting guy to watch. Yeah, definitely, especially when you think you know he's, he's 215 pounds, but he definitely um, moves around. Or you, you, you think of him more as a scat-back type, just the way he runs from a, from a style standpoint. So, yeah, I, I like the, the various skill sets there, and they should, they should both have two uh, great seasons again coming up. Yeah, no question. Well, one guy who's played some running back, and I think you actually uh, put a couple of shots of him uh, up on your Twitter feed uh, recently, uh, but Moore's known for his defensive abilities. Miles Jack from UCLA, 6'1", 232 pounds, has been on the national radar just because of his positional versatility uh, over the past couple of years. Plays weak side linebacker in that 3-4 front, but really he walks out in the slot. He's played some safety in some looks. Uh, really just a, is proficient in space and his ability to play sideline to sideline. What have you seen from Jack so far? A lot of what you're saying. He was he was excellent last season. And, it, and it's funny because he does get the, the recognition because he stepped into UCLA's running back position as a true freshman and was extremely productive, did a little bit of it last year. Um, but he was our top-rated coverage linebacker in the nation last year over at UCLA. So um, very good in space, really good at working downhill. He can... He can run the seam with, with tight ends and, and slot receivers. So he's a really good athlete. And, and it's funny, there's a, there's a lot of these types around college, guys like Jalen Smith, who are, are just excellent athletes that the NFL is going to be looking for. And to be honest, I, I think linebacker value is, is higher than ever. And despite people talking about a devalued position and teams don't need linebackers like they used to, in my opinion, a three-down linebacker is as valuable as, as he's ever been because you have to be able to cover in space. You have to be able to play the run um, in, a, in a lighter box with only a six-man box. And Jack is that type of guy. He was solid against the run, excellent in coverage, definitely one of the best linebackers in the country and, and potentially a first-round pick coming up next year. Yeah, and definitely a special athlete for that position. Another guy who's a special athlete who's at his position in the Pac-12 DeForest Buckner from Oregon, the six foot seven, two hundred eighty-one pound defensive end, uh, just a, a huge human being. What have you seen from Buckner, and you know, what do you think his ceiling is? Is this guy a top fifteen pick? Is he a top twenty pick, or is he you know more along the lines of uh, borderline first, second round selection? See, I think if, if Eric Armstead, his former teammate, is a is a top fifteen or twenty pick, as the NFL sold us last year, then Buckner absolutely is in that range. Buckner was a better player, a more productive player. And, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't, I don't hate Eric Armstead. I just thought Armstead had a lot of uh, games where he just disappeared and just wasn't as dominant as you'd like to see from a guy that's built similarly to Buckner, that six, eight, six, nine, 300 pound type of player. Whereas Buckner actually brought it every single week. He was one of the best run defenders in the entire country. He was an excellent pass rusher. We had him with six sacks, six QB hits and 32 hurries. So one of the better interior rushers in the entire nation. Uh, he just—he was the most productive defensive uh, defensive lineman on Oregon, and one of the best defensive linemen in the Pac-12 from a from a production standpoint. He was right up there with Leonard Williams, and right up there with with, with one of our favorites, uh, Henry Anderson, who was probably the most productive 
defensive end or defensive lineman in the entire Pac-12. So I put Buckner right up in that range. I think he's a first-round type from body type to production. Uh, definitely a fun one to watch. Yeah, no question. And for a guy who's 280-plus pounds, his first step off the ball is just – I mean, it's its freakish. And you, see, you don't want to throw that term around, but just his ability to come off the ball and threaten the edge for a 281-pound guy – uh, a lot of people complain that he plays high. I think in that scheme, in that two-gap scheme for Oregon, they, they want those guys to be able to play high so they can see over the lineman in front of them. Uh, Buckner, you know, he's a heavy-handed guy. I'm really excited to watch, see how he continues to develop this year for the, for the Ducks. Yeah, like I said, it's funny. When, when, our, when our grades get tossed around and compared to maybe scouting terms, and it's, well, he plays high. and I, I'm just looking at his numbers right now. We had him at plus 28 against the run. That was seventh in the entire country. Uh, amongst interior defensive players so whether he plays high low whatever he's beating blocks and getting stuff done because we take all that stuff into account so um, I really like what he did on the field last year all right Steve I think that'll do it man once again thanks for joining me here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast we'll talk to you soon sounds good thanks Brent Great stuff from Steve. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Steve. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. Give me a follow. Shoot me a question. Uh, In fact, I mentioned it earlier in the show. We had a user on iTunes write the show and leave a a comment with a question. Uh, Swerving Irving wants to know why the secondary has struggled the last couple years. Is it more of a talent issue or more of a coaching issue? And uh, Swerving Irving, if you're listening, I'm hoping you are since you rated the show. uh, You know, I think that it's – a little bit of a mix. You talked with some of the players this uh, this spring, and they're excited about Corey Undlin and a lot of the different techniques and the way that he's coaching them. So uh, a lot of these guys are really excited about the the new blood on the coaching staff and uh, and what they're learning from these guys. So that'll be really exciting on that standpoint. But also, look, I mean, there's a reason why there's three new starters here in the secondary. You've got uh, who right now you've got Walter Thurman, who's leading the way here at safety. Uh, Bill Davis talked about him in his press conference on Monday and how well he is really adjusted to that position. And then obviously on the at cornerback you have Byron, uh, who we talked to earlier in the show, as well as Eric Rowe, who was a second round pick. Nolan Carroll, uh, who is starting right now and who's competing with Rowe. So Jacory Shepard as well. I mean, you've got a, a lot of bodies here. Uh, I believe it was Lewis Riddick, who was former uh, Eagles personnel man and who's now with ESPN was at practice on Sunday, the first practice of the year, and just talked about how impressive these secondary players were uh, and how well they moved, especially for their size. So uh, really, really excited about this secondary moving forward. But, uh, B, I think that's going to do it, man. Another show in the books here uh, on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Uh, number 19, week two of uh, 2015 season. So uh, we're, we're, we're getting underway. We're getting the, uh, getting the ball rolling. We're going. All right. Well, thanks to Steve. Thanks to Boomer. Thanks to Byron Maxwell. And thank you so much to all of our listeners, whether you're on iTunes, whether you're on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, even PhiladelphiaEagles.com, the Eagles mobile app, wherever you're listening. Thank you. And if you get the time, go on again. Rate the show. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Shoot me a question. I want to hear from you guys and keep all of you happy so wherever you listen give us a rating leave us a comment and we'll keep making the show better each and every week all that being said i think that's going to do it another show here in the books uh on the eagle eye in the sky podcast for my producer bt i'm fran duffy we'll talk to you next week